Hey friends, you know, uh, there's all those good news, bad news jokes. Usually they're about a doctor. We need to begin with a couple today. Like the doctor does this eye surgery on this guy and he comes in after the surgery and he says, I got good news and bad news. The man says, well, what's the good news? And the doctor says, well, you're about to get a new dog. Think about it. You'll get it. Okay. Or how about this one? The, the doctor co- comes in and, and, and he, says, he says to the guy, Mr. Smith, I'm so sorry, but once we got in, we discovered we had to amputate both of your legs. Both of your legs are, had to come off. And he says, oh, that's horrible, bad news. What's the good news? And the doctor says, well, the guy next door wants to buy your shoes. <laughs> so that's some good news and some bad news in that order. We need a laugh, I think, to begin what we're talking about today. Because honestly, we're going to talk about some stuff that is no laughing matter at all. In fact, some quite serious business. You know, in all my years... Um, walking with the Lord and working with the Lord's people, I have to say I've never seen a single one who lived happily ever after. I just never have. Whose life had all ups and no downs. We had a bunch of baptisms a couple weeks ago here at Mountain. And you know, I've never seen a single person who came up out of the baptistry waters smiling who never took that smile off their face. The good news is that, on the other hand, I I have seen so many followers of Jesus who have endured some really serious affliction, some deep trauma, huge disappointments and setbacks in life, who've endured incredible pain through years of difficulty, some godly people who find themselves in what could only be described as a dry desert wilderness place of excruciating experience, who at the same time have learned something there that enabled them to cling to joy and radiate hope and faith-based optimism, to sustain a winsome spirit, even through heartache, even through tears, even at death's door. I've seen all that. So here's the bad news. Uh, we all have stuff that happens. You can't, you, you, can't, you can't take the Christian life and buy it in the frozen food aisle, you know, and just grab it, take the wrapper off and pop it in the microwave for a few minutes and you're good to go. We all want that. We all want the rich, good, beautiful life of depth and maturity and strength and wisdom and joy and all the stuff I described about radiating hope and all that. We want to arrive at the promised land of success and strength. And the good news is you can. But it might sound like bad news when I tell you that the only way you get there is through the gift of Going through the wilderness of failure and hardship and struggle. The bad news is you got to go through the desert. It's a process that is just baked into the way God does things. It's ordained for all of us. There's no shortcut. Everyone has to go through wilderness times of defeat and failure and discouragement and tears. And I know that 
sounds like really bad news. But in a way, you know, while you're saying, oh, great, thanks, Ben, this is a real pick-me-up, you know, you got any other cheery news for us today? The fact is that when you think about it, it really is good news because it reminds us what we already know, and that is that we have all that stuff in our life anyway, even if we stuff it down and hide it. We've got mistakes we've made, and you don't have to go back in my calendar very far to find some. We've got stuff that's happened to us that's just bad news. We all mess up and find ourselves where we don't want to be in a wilderness place. But the good news is it's true for everyone, and you're never alone. And the other news is that it's in those places that we learn some of life's most important lessons. And that's what we want to talk about today. God uses all of that stuff to shape us and to help us become the version of ourselves we could never be had we not been to the wilderness. So welcome, everybody. We're in week two of this series. We're calling uh, an M.O. like Mo because everyone has a modus operandi, right? We have an M.O., a thing that we do, our habits and the way that we live our lives. And this the most classic leader in really all of human history is probably Moses, and we're learning a ton from him and his life story, and he's had a ton of highs and lows, and it turns out he spent some time in the wilderness. Last week, we talked about how he was born into trouble and how all of us have some times of instability and insecurity in our life growing up, and that whatever childhood you had, God can visit you there and redeem it and use it, and just as his mother surrendered That which she treasured the most, her own child, into a basket in the river, it found its way into the hands of God and his purposes. And whatever you are holding on to that needs to be surrendered, you can do the same as she did and know that what you need to surrender can be given over to God and it will find its way to God's purposes. Now, Moses' life, if you remember, we're kind of taking this. This is a long life, and there's a lot of scripture about this, but a lot of people have pointed out that his life kind of boils down to three 40-year segments. All right? The first 40 years is where he's a prince of Egypt living in a palace, right? This is where he thought he was a somebody. The, The second 40 years is when he lives as a fugitive, in Midian, hiding in the desert. And this is where he discovered he was a nobody. And the third 40 years is where he becomes a leader of God's people, guiding and directing them to the promised land. And here's where he learned what God could do with a nobody. He moves from being a somebody to a nobody to learning what God can do with a nobody. We're focusing on that second 40-year period today after his time of growing up in Egypt because it comes to a tragic and abrupt end through a mistake that Moses makes. And he finds himself leaving the plush palatial palace and finds himself in the middle of a desert, desolate, barren, nowhere. Let's go to the text. It's Exodus chapter 2. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. We're in the second chapter of the second verse, second book, uh, starting at verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, 
So he's an adult now, and remember, he's one of God's chosen people. He has God's people on his heart, and so does God. God is hearing the horrible oppression of what's happening with the Hebrew people. They're being just horribly abused by the tyrannical taskmasters of the Egyptians, and he sees all this. He lives with that. He's in the Egyptian temple, but a part of him is always connected to God and God's people, and So when he's an adult, he grows up and he says, I got to just get out there and see it. And so it says he went out to where his own people, the Jewish people, were, and he watched them at their hard labor, and it just works all over him. He saw with his own eyes an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And so here we begin to see the rescuing, redeeming, saving God, hearing the complaints of the people start to reflect itself In Moses' own heart. That's a good thing. Unfortunately, Moses tries to take matters into his own hands. And he doesn't listen to God's timing and he doesn't do things in God's way. Verse 12 says that Moses just erupts. He looks this way and that. And you know what that looks like, right? Like, is anybody watching what I'm about to do? This is premeditated. And the next word is he killed that Egyptian. And then he covered it up. He hid him in the sand. He looked left and right to make sure nobody would see him. He just forgot to look up. You ever do that? Think you're covering all your bases, but you really forgot to even ask the Lord what he thought about his timing and his way. Because we think it's God's purpose and God's agenda and we want to do something for him. So we look left and right. We forget to look up. That's what Moses did. And so I don't know how he killed him. Maybe it was with a sword or a spear or something he'd learned growing up in the palace. Maybe some martial arts. We don't know. And then he tries to conceal the evidence. It's like a scene from the movie Fargo or something, except instead of a wood chipper, he tries to bury him in five inches of loose sand, thinking it's over and nobody will know. Of course, the Bible reminds us that your sins will find you out. You can't hide your past in the sand. It usually takes a while, but the truth always surfaces. And then we're looking up because God is looking down. Now, in Moses' case, it happens fast. Verse 13, the very next day, he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? He, here comes Moses. He wants to be the deliverer of God's people. But they don't understand that. They don't accept that. All they see is the prince of Egypt. And, and so he wants to put the plan into action and rally the troops. And he sees two Hebrews fight against each other. He's frustrated, tries to separate them. And they say, who are you, prince? Knock it, you know. And, and, they, and they just tell him, you know, get away. And that's when his actions change his life forever. And their response is what tells him what he needs to do next. Verse 14, the man said, wait, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed that Egyptian? Yeah, Mo, we saw you. And then Moses was afraid and he thought, what I did must have become known. Those are powerful words. What I did must have become known. Maybe you've had a moment like that. The game was up. The secret was out. The ruse was over. The lies had stopped. Usually that brings some pretty radical change into our life, which feels like bad news. But often 
that sort of rock bottom, that sort of intervention, that sort of can't pretend anymore, turns out to be good news, even when it feels like bad news. News travels fast in Egypt. Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. I'd rather have him dead than have a traitor for a son, stepson. So Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Maybe you've never heard of Midian. Well, that's okay, because it's not that big a deal. It's Podunk, it's Paducah, it's Timbuktu. So here's the prince of Egypt running for his life, away from the palace, never will go back and call it home again. He goes west. They always faced east in those times. That was the way they oriented their life. You face east, and then you knew your bearings, north and south. And so behind you, the backside is west, and that's where he went, to the backside of nowhere, to a place called Midian. If you've ever seen a desolate, dry, rough, dusty, lifeless desert, that's where Moses went. I've talked to a few kids who are excited about um, heading off to a new school next fall. There's some that are going to be heading to whether middle school or high school. And, of course, there's a lot of kids I've talked to that are heading off to college next fall. And you know the drill. You, you, pick, you look at websites and you make a school visit. You check the brochures. You make the phone calls, whatever. But that helps you choose a school. And then you drive there or fly there. And then there's that quick exchange. And the kids are like, bye, mom and dad. And mom and dad have a lump in their throat. But God has a school too. And sometimes he chooses it for us. And it doesn't have dormitories or classrooms, but it is one of his very effective places at teaching us so much of what we need to know. And God's school is the wilderness. It's the dry, dusty, scorched earth of the desert. It's not a very fun place to be. It's desolate. And you might spend many months there or even years. In Moses' case, 40 years. You know, in Hebrew, the word for desert is midbar. Midbar is the word desert, which is from the word dabar, dabar, which means to speak, which I think makes sense. Because on the one hand, the desert is the place where we're in solitude and we, we don't speak and we hear nothing. But in another sense, eventually... When we're in the desert wilderness place, God eventually will speak with us in ways that we can't hear anywhere else. He'll teach us things we can't learn anywhere else. Even if we don't hear from him right away. Because I I think it's the lonely places, and I think of the hard times in my life, maybe you can think of those desert experiences you've had, where you're finally kind of stripped of things that are comfortable. You're stripped of, of, of things that are distracting and you can hear the voice of God, even though life is hard. So there's Moses. He's running from something. He's afraid of something. That's what sends us into the wilderness. And in that school, there's three things that God can do to teach us One, I think God uses waiting. 
we wait in the wilderness. And God uses the waiting to teach us trust and obedience. And God uses loneliness to teach us the beauty and strength of solitude. And God uses the discomfort and pain we feel to teach us the strength of his presence. You know, over in the New Testament, we get a little insight into this episode out of Moses' life by listening to how the New Testament writers talk about it. Acts chapter 7, New Testament now, it refers to this. It says, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, in the middle of nowhere. He's a stranger out there, but where he became the father of two sons and 40 years had passed. So you can see this. Here's this guy. He, you know, as soon as he gets wind that Pharaoh's trying to kill him, he, does he jump in the chariot and ride it until its wheels fall off and then stagger on his princely sandals until those come off and he's snagging his palatial robes on the, on the cactus branches all around him until he shows up parched and tattered and worn and on his last legs as he meets a humble farmer by the name of Jethro in Midian of all places. Guess what? He ends up marrying one of that guy's daughters. In other words, he's not just visiting the wilderness. He's putting up a mailbox. He lives there now. They have kids. It's the next phase of his life. Life has a funny way of taking some turns, doesn't it? And think about the contrast. Here's this guy. He had gone to school already once in the richest, best school. Think of Oxford of ancient Egypt. That's where Moses would have gone to school. He learned hieroglyphics, highly technical and difficult language to learn. He learned science and literature from the best schools of Egypt, all the military tactics and disciplines, ate the finest foods and living in the lap of luxury and comfort. And now here he is in the middle of nowhere, living with his in-laws, doesn't even own his own sheep, with a couple of kids chasing sheep through the sand. It's a major detour. It's not the school he was planning on enrolling in. Back home, he was a celebrity, you know, like Prince William or Harry. Every time he did anything, everybody noticed and listened. And sheep, they don't do that. He's living in obscurity. And I'm sure he had to think to himself, what a waste. What a waste this is. But here's the thing that we must not forget. In God's school, nothing is wasted Everything becomes an object lesson or a way to learn and grow. God doesn't waste anything. No tragedy, no bad stuff, no detours, no hard stuff. In fact, some of that stuff is the best training of all. So let me challenge you to think about the thing you hate most about your life right now. You got it? The thing that you, it's, you hate it. Would you believe me if I told you that God wants to use it, even redeem it, let it come in handy for him and you and others once it is surrendered to him? In God's school, God uses waiting to teach us trust and patience. 
And Moses learned that lesson of patience in God's timing. For him, it was 40 years. I went to school a long time. I didn't go 40 years. My goodness. But it would come in handy when the wanderings of God's people went on for 40 years. Moses could simply say, I've been there, done that. Is there something you're impatient about right now? Some learning that God could teach you through the waiting? Rome wasn't built in the day. Your soul won't be built in the day either. The school of wilderness can teach us patience. God uses our waiting, whatever you're waiting for, to teach us trust in him and patience. And, and God uses loneliness to teach us the beauty of solitude and its strength. That's what Moses learned, to find strength in solitude. You know, we're just terrified of being alone today, aren't we? I mean, it's like, we're, I, I just see everywhere we go, people are like, put their earbuds in, get in the car, turn on the radio, to come home, turn on the TV. We never want to be alone. We don't want to ever have something where we just have to sort of be still and know that God is God. But you know, some lessons can only be learned when the jar of river water that's always shaken up and cloudy just sits and is still in solitude for a while so it can settle and we can think clearly with clarity again. And Moses was in a quiet place like that for a long time, and God used that. It helped him later when the people were grumbling, when they were questioning and attacking him, accusing him, when they hated him, when they betrayed him. All that came at him, and through it all, he stood alone. How could he do that? How, how could he endure? I'll tell you how. He had been to school in the desert, and he learned how to handle by standing alone in the school of solitude and silence for so long. He didn't need someone to pat him on the back. He could go right on doing what God had called him to do, even in the face of bitter opposition. Not a fun lesson, but an important one. Have you learned that? Have you learned something in the school of loneliness and quiet and solitude. God uses it to teach us the strength that we need. And God uses our pain and the discomfort that you're experiencing in any season of your life. Whatever wilderness pain you're having, God uses it to teach us something greater about his presence, which gives us a strength. Moses learned that lesson from pain. There was nothing comfortable about Midian. What kind of pain are you experiencing now? And have you surrendered it to the Lord to say, God, show me, teach me. Let me read for you a poem I've always really appreciated. It goes like this. Pain knocked upon my door and said she had come to stay. And though I would not welcome her but bade her go away, she entered in. And like my own shade, she followed after me from her stabbing, singing, stinging sword no moment was I free? And then one day another knocked most gently at my door. I said, no, pain is here. There's not room for more. But then I heard his tender voice say, it is I. Don't be afraid. And from the day Jesus entered in, oh, the difference he has made. Friend, I don't know what kind of pain you're dealing with right now, but I'm sure you've got some. And the encouragement from the school of the desert is to invite him in. And he may not take that pain away, but he will come alongside and use it to grow and strengthen you in your desert.
I want you to meet um, a friend who grew up here at Mountain. Her name is Juliana Zock. Juliana um, grew up here and after college came back here to serve on our team as a resident and training for ministry. And even as she was doing this beautiful job of helping so many others on their journey with God, she was having quite a journey of her own. In fact, she found herself in a desert place, what many through history have called the dark night of the soul. A crisis of faith, if you will. And hers is a story that's not unlike a lot of others. And I'd like you to hear her story now. The wilderness experiences, whether they were literal desert wanderings or metaphorical long periods of just waiting on God. And we also see wilderness stories in our own lives now. You know, we have stories of wandering and wondering stories of trying to figure out how to hold on to hope as we move forward, stories of wanting to find God and not knowing how. I wanna tell you a bit about my own wilderness story today. In May, I graduated from a Master of Divinity program, which I often tell people is simply graduate work in church work. <laughs> And as I am in this transition period of my life, this period where one big chapter is ending and I'm figuring out what's next, I've had a lot of opportunity to reflect on what that two-year program represents for me. In some ways, it's, it's easy. It's okay, this program represents two years of really hard work. <laughs> it represents two years of getting to know my professors and my peers represents two years of my husband supporting me and making sacrifices to me in ways that I often didn't realize at the time. But I also know that it's about so much more than the past two years, this point in my life, that this point marks a transition between a really long period of seven years of just trying to hold on to any ounce of my faith and the what's next of now that I feel like I'm coming out of that, where do I go from here? There's a book I read this past semester for school that talks about the dark night of the soul, which is basically just a prolonged period of struggling spiritually. And that's what I've come to use as the term for these past seven years in my own life. And at one point, the author describes how various people might react to just the weariness of enduring such a season. She says that, you know, when you feel like you've lost everything you thought you knew and the old ways of going through life don't work for you anymore, that some people just give up entirely, which I really understand. She says some people try to cover up their deeper concerns with surface level fixes. So going to a church that's a different size or style or denomination, which I really understand. And she says that some people double down on resisting what they feel internally, that even though the old ways don't work anymore, at least they're familiar. And so they refuse to give those things up, which I also really understand. And then she says this, she says that the fourth type of person um, is known as, as a weary pilgrim. And she says, for some weary pilgrims, hope still flickers, however dimly, 
calling forth yearning for love and community, for spiritual life. The way to get there is a mystery hidden in the obscurity of loss. When I started my program in ministry, I was really just about as weary as you could get. I already had about five years under my belt of just barely hanging on, and I'd started to wonder, how long do you wait until you just call it? You know, like waiting in traffic. You know that you've, you've waited a long time, so inevitably if you get off, it's gonna speed up right around the corner, but around each corner it doesn't speed up, and so you start to wonder, when do I just take the next off-ramp? When do I just call it and take 40 instead of 95? But still, that flicker of hope, that little voice that was telling me just hold on a little longer remained. And so that little voice is the only reason that I started my program. And the weight of everything else is why I thought that I wouldn't finish. I was surprised recently when I realized that a lot of my experience in, in my own perspective could be summed up by a story that's in John's gospel. And the gospel of John is just one of the four books in the New Testament that tells us about Jesus's life and ministry. And there's this part in chapter 20 where a woman named Mary Magdalene goes to Jesus's tomb. This is after he's been crucified and she's going to anoint his body just with the traditional spices. And when she gets there, she finds that not only is the tomb surprisingly open, but it's shockingly empty. And John tells us that Mary runs to Simon Peter and the other disciple who is probably John. And I wonder, I wonder if she was out of breath when she got there. <laughs> I know I get out of breath pretty easily running just from place to place. So I wonder if she was out of breath and if the, the shock and the fear and the worry was showing on her face when she said, they've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. Naturally, they run back to the tomb with her. They wanna see it for themselves and they discover that it truly is empty. And then John tells us that they go back to the place where they were staying, leaving Mary alone, weeping now in front of the tomb. And she peeks in again and she sees that there are two angels there this time. And they ask her, why are you crying? And she says that same phrase again, they've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. I think the first time I could have said that, they've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've put him and really understood the depth of what that meant would have been around 2014 when I was a sophomore in college and I was standing in my dorm room kind of feeling the weight of just feeling like everything I thought I knew was wrong. <laughs> And I was asking myself, what happens to my life, my thoroughly Christian life, if I walk away? If I decide that the church is too broken? If I decide my belief is too broken for me to stay? I think from that point until halfway through my, uh, my graduate program, I wondered almost every day if that would be the day that that flickering hope finally faded the day that I took the next off-ramp, if you will. After Mary sees the angels in the tomb, a man walks up to her and she thinks that he's the gardener. 
And he also asks her, why are you crying? And who are you looking for? And she turns to him and she says, if you have taken him, tell me where you've put him and I will go get him. You know, just, just tell me where he is. You don't even have to go get him. I and the strength of my desperation can carry him as far as it takes. Just tell me where he is. I think that was the other half of my daily liturgy, of my daily ritual of faith, you know, is, that, is today the day? And if not, just tell me where he is and I'll go get him myself. After Mary responds to the gardener, asking him to tell her where Jesus is, he simply says, Mary. And she realizes he is not the gardener, he is Jesus. And I would bet pretty good money that nothing you could do would get Mary to put Jesus back where she thought he was supposed to be at that moment. Because he might have been somewhere unexpected, but alive next to her is so much better than dead in front of her. And that's been my experience of the wilderness too. That when I was alone in front of Jesus' tomb, when I was in the desert alone looking for any signs of life in front of the places where I thought my faith was supposed to be, wondering if anyone could tell me where to find my faith again, desperate for things to go back to how they were supposed to be, it turns out that Jesus walked up beside me and after I begged him to tell me where he was, he simply said, Juliana, I see you, and I'm right here. It was in facing the empty tomb of my expectations. It was in walking and wandering in the wilderness that I discovered God could meet me there too. Always somewhere unexpected and always somewhere better than where I thought God was supposed to be. If that seems like a bit of a stretch to you, if that seems like the naive story of a stranger, if it seems too vague to offer you comfort, I hope you believe me when I tell you that I understand, that I know what it's like to sit in a church seat and feel like a fraud, to feel like an outsider in a place where you used to fit in so well and so easily. I know what it's like to wonder if you should just take the off ramp already. And I also know that in the moments when I have not known where to begin <laughs> and, how, and how to take a step forward in hope, when I didn't know how to keep believing, when it felt like it was impossible or like I should just take the off ramp, I have found comfort uh, in the prayers that have been written by believers years and years and years before me. Like this one by Thomas Merton. He says this, my Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. 
Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. I don't know a whole lot. I don't claim to know a whole lot these days. But what I think I can say for certain is that even in the desert, we are finding God again, often in the most unexpected places. May we discover that the wilderness is not a death sentence, but an invitation to new life. May it be so. So I love Juliana's story. It's painful, but it's also beautiful, isn't it? It, it demonstrates the truth of how sorrow lasts for a night. But there is joy in the morning because it is often in the darkness of the desert that new life and light is born and where we find the light and life of the living Jesus himself. So friends, there's lots of reasons why you might find yourself in the wilderness. You know, you, it, it may be that you're taking care. I talked to someone who said she's taking care of her ailing and aging parents and there's not much help and there's no end in sight. It's like stretches like a long desert in front of her. Or it could be that your sojourn into the dry lands is because of a stubborn physical condition that just really confines you. Or it's the deep soul ache, maybe, from a detached spouse or a lifeless relationship or, or a teenager in rebellion or a family member who's self-destructing. Or you could have moved from a place where you were all connected and had family and friends and now you're in this place that feels as welcoming as, as the Sahara. You could have missed, messed up at work or failed at school or got dumped or your job is boring and thankless. Friends, we wind up in the desert wilderness for reasons like Juliana's different than hers. The question isn't so important about how or why, but who we turn to when we're there, who we trust is there, even in the dark. Let me leave you with a beautiful scripture that has helped so many, including myself, through the darkest times of my life. Deuteronomy chapter 32, God is talking about his child, Israel. He refers to him in the personal sense, and you can almost put your own name in there. Here's what it says. In a desert land, he found him. God found him in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him and guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Replace your name with, with those names there. God found you in a desert land. God Shielded and cared for you. You are like the pupil of God's eye. God knows where you are today. No matter how lost you may feel in the outer reaches of some nowhere, in a place that Juliana or anyone else may have found themselves, how horrible things are is not what's important. Whatever failure or whatever sorrow, whatever you're running from, whatever isolation you're feeling as a result of the pandemic or something else, God will shield you and encircle you and enfold you with his protecting love. And he will guard you like the pupil of his eye. Did you think about that? The pupil of your eye is the most protected part of your body. 
It's the part that you won't let anything touch it. You shield it with great care, safeguard it from the sun. If something gets in, a speck gets in there, you are immediately getting it out of there. And so it is with God's care for us. No matter if we feel forgotten, the truth is, you're like the pupil of God's eye. The following verses, 11 and 12, say that God is like an eagle, a mother bird that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young. They may be oblivious to it, but she is spreading its wings to catch them and carries them aloft, and the Lord alone is the one who will guide you. And friend, God is guiding you, even when you don't feel it, even when you don't know it, and even if you can't believe it. God has not taken his hand off your life any more than he took it off of the life of Moses. He is spreading his wings over you and has sheltered you with his pinions and is carrying you even now. So you reach for the hand of the guide through the desert, whatever your desert wilderness is. And remember this, Jesus went through the worst desert of all and he did it for you. He experienced aloneness like no one else ever has. He, he was rejected. He lived in obscurity. He suffered the worst that life on earth and hell itself could hurl at him, didn't he? On the cross, he said, I thirst. And when the desert night was darkest, he screamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You talk about deserted. He felt its heat. He felt its loneliness, its obscurity and solitude, but he did it for you. So you just keep walking. You keep making footprints in the sand. You keep following his guide and his lead. Even if you can't see him or hear him, you stagger forward in the way of Jesus who has promised he will never leave you, forget you, or forsake you. 